An old African proverb says, when the big elephants fight, the grass is destroyed. And you, when you have a handful of self-serving politicians who are only interested in power, money, and they're being like the Caesars of old, the Roman emperors, when they fight to hold on selfishly to power and to resources, what happens? The grass is destroyed. The people suffer. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Amos C. Brown. He's a longtime civil rights activist. Since 1976, he has served as pastor of Third Baptist Church of San Francisco, a prominent Black Baptist church with a deep and rich history. He'll be talking a bit about both that church as well as some of his civil rights work in this conversation. He's also the pastor to Senator and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And so one of the things that I was excited to talk to Reverend Brown about was our soon-to-be vice president, who, come January 20th, will become only the fifth Baptist to serve as vice president of the United States of America. And obviously, as a woman, as well as someone of Indian and Jamaican descent, she is quite different than the other four. So I think you'll find his comments to be interesting, to be challenging, and I was just really grateful for the opportunity to interview him. So here's my conversation with Amos C. Brown of the Third Baptist Church of San Francisco. First of all, thanks for your time, and I'm so happy to be able to talk with you. You've had a very significant career, and I wanted to talk about a couple of those things to learn more about you and your ministry. Yes. You, of course, have been at Third Baptist Church in San Francisco since 1976, which is just an incredible tenure. I I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your church that you've served all these years. First of all, Third Baptist is the oldest predominantly Black Baptist church in the Western United States. It was founded on August the 1st, 1882. They were born out of struggle when a black woman named Eliza Davis impressed upon her husband, William, the need for blacks to move out of white First Baptist because of the discrimination, humiliation, 
they felt in the house of God. Ms. Davis is from Charlottesville, Virginia. She was born in 1790 and lived to be 103 years old. Wow. 103 years old. I'm sure that she was impacted over the fact that when they organized this church, it was the anniversary of the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies, August the 1st. And just one month before, on July the 5th, I'm sure that she, her husband, and others were impacted by that great speech that Frederick Douglass delivered in Rochester, New York. What does the Declaration of Independence mean to the slave? And thirdly, it was the year that Harry Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was published, which very much define the horrors and the inhumanity of enslavement of our people. Dirt back in the 168 years that has been in existence has never had a split. And I attribute that to the fact that it has always been focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ as is represented in Luke 4, which is a liberating gospel for all people. There's an old saying from Mississippi that you've never seen a mule kick and pull at the same time. You've never seen a mule kick and pull at the same time. So their Baptist has been pulling this load of the whole gospel gospel of individual and personal salvation, and also the gospel for social justice and social salvation. That's been our brand, our image. That is such a rich history. And it's amazing to think that a church that old has never had a split. That is a testament that unfortunately cannot be said about a lot of Baptist churches. And you've been there, I'll be honest, you've been there longer than I've been alive as pastor. Well, I've had the longest tenure in the history of the church. You know, we have a lot of pastors that listen to this program. I'm sure some of them are going to wonder, what's your secret for such a long tenure? Preach, pray, and participate in knowing the people and in being a servant to work collaboratively to liberate all people from oppression, from unrighteousness, and from the evils of our society. That's what I've discovered to be some guiding principles. And for those who don't know, you your ministry and, and public witness 
goes back well before your tenure even at this church. You, you of course, were active in the civil rights movement, even in high school. You took a, a college class taught by Martin Luther King Jr., which only a few people can claim that. I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about who you were before you became the Reverend Amos Brown. Who, where, did, where did you come from in this background that, that led to this remarkable ministry? Well, going back five generations, my great-great-grandfather, Patrick Brown, was enslaved in Franklin County, Mississippi. Franklin County is a county near Natchez. And back in those difficult days, my great-grandfather respected education, the liberation of black people, and was about black folks owning something. The Latter-day Saints did uh, a genealogical search on my ancestry. And they, lo and behold, dug up the records that indicated that in 1880, my great-great-grandfather purchased 150 acres of land for $700. And he, along with two other men, acquired another acre to build the Bethlehem Baptist Church there in Roxy. Then think about it. Way back then, the black man dared to own something and had high regard for education and quality of spirituality. And then on my mother's side, there in Hines County, Mississippi, a place called Clinton, my great-great-grandfather voted in every election from 1870 to 1890. So they were about civic engagement. Now, I didn't know anything about all of this until the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints dug up this record. And that same county where my great-grandfather lived in Mississippi um, is where the great writer, Mr. Wright, made this song and Black Boy. He was born in Roxy, and he went also to the same elementary school that I attended, one of the oldest black schools in the state of Mississippi, Smith Robinson School. It's now a museum there in Jackson. He went to Jim Hill High School. I went to Jim Hill. I'm citing this record to say 
Tennyson was right when he said in Ulysses, I'm a part of all that I have met. And what I met in my genealogical construct had determined that I had no choice other than to be about, even as a preacher, social justice and equality of opportunity for the marginalized and all. And then I was greatly touched and in fact, in 1955, Emmett Till was 14 years old and I was 14. And that was great terror for me. It was horrifying. And I ran to Mr. Mega Evers, the newly appointed field director of the NACP, and told him how upset I was over the lynching of Emmett Till. And he said to me, Amos, don't just be angry, but let's be smart. Why not organize a youth council of the NACP so you and your young friends will learn how to fight this evil of racism and injustice in a smart, strategic way? And I organized the first youth council of NACP in the state of Mississippi in September of 1955. And spring of 1956, Mr. Evers asked my mother if I could come to San Francisco to attend the National Convention, the 47th annual meeting of NACP. And it was at that meeting that I first met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ms. Rosa Parks, a. Philip Randolph, Walter Ruther, Roy Wilkins, Bishop Stephen Gill Spotswoods. So I was able to interface with, to be impacted by these great iconic leaders. Reminded of the, the passage of Hebrews about the great cloud of witnesses and Oh, yes. You were there with them, and now you are part of that great cloud of witnesses for us. You, you said it right. I was surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I, and in fact, since I got this genealogical chart, I'm going to be preaching a sermon on Sunday. Rubies in the roots. Rubies in the roots based on that genealogical chart in Matthew of Jesus and the significance of one knowing where one came from, the significance of having a sense of place, the significance of knowing that your ancestors were part of something great and glorious. And that's what every black youngster and every youngster generally should have. A sense of place, a sense of history, a sense of somebodyness. And that was the evil of enslavement for the slave traders, the slave masters did everything to cut the African away from the great heritage of Africa, to tell a lie 
about the inferiority of blacks as Aristotle did in his politics going back to the fourth century before Jesus Christ was born. They told the lie. And Aristotle stated it in his politics that the black man of Ethiopian was inferior and that number two, he would never be capable of self-governance. He would always have to have a white man over him or her. That's the lie that was told. And that's the lie that this Western civilization was built on. So that was very much encouraging when I got this handsome, attractive, well-researched genealogy of my ancestry. One of the things that I think is so important in your telling of this is you're reminding us that a lot of this injustice is is not very long ago, and obviously many of it, much of it continues. I don't want to suggest that we have come anywhere close to creating that beloved community, but you know, Emmett Till, if he were still alive today, would be your age. Yes. I also saw that year was also that when the Baptist pastor. George Lee was killed, and I believe... Yes, George Washington Lee was murdered. He was the first case of that era where someone was was, was a martyr because of simply trying to exercise one's right to vote. It was on May the 7th, 1955, that he was shot at midnight on his way home. These Ku Klux Klan members shot his jaw because he would not take his name and his wife's name, members of his church, to off the voting roll in Humphreys County, Mississippi. That was done. And then come August the 13th, that same year, 1955, Lamar Smith, a World War I veteran, was on his way to deliver some absentee ballots for a runoff election. He was shot down at 10 o'clock in the morning, close range, on the lawn of the courthouse, Lincoln County, Mississippi, in the city of Brookhaven. And then come December that same year, Mr. Gus Coach was shot in the Mississippi Delta, though he's later, he survived, later died in Chicago, Illinois. He was also an officer of NACP. So you see, this, this, this nation has done a lot of evil, inhumane things to black people. Just didn't want to respect us as being human, but wanted to see us as being inferior, as Aristotle said. And we're still dealing with that evil, that sin. And Donald Trump has been the embodiment of that with his racialized politics. Yeah, I think after the election of Barack Obama, we had a, 
a lot of commentators suggesting that, well, this is great. We're moving into a post-racial society. And if the last four years have, have taught us anything, and hopefully they have, that is clearly not true, that we have so much work still to do. And that even with President Trump heading out of the White House, he, he still garnered 47% of the vote and still received even more votes than he did four years ago. And that's a, you know, a pretty significant sign of where our society still is. You know what that sign was? That sign was that this nation never accepted its therapy hmm. to get this demon of race out of us. It was never exercised. It just waited for a more convenient season. As Satan, according to the Bible, left Jesus in the wilderness for just a season. And until black people are able to live in a country where whites, first of all, will confess, to admit, to own up to, the evils that they did with enslavement, segregation, separate but equal. But you've had the church of all places. As the scripture says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It was the white evangelical church, greatly led by the Southern Baptists, who founded the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845, what was the issue that they were splitting over from the Northern Baptist, slavery, slavery. And even the white church under the leadership of Jerry Falwell fought integration. You have the church led the fight to maintain segregation in the church house. And we will not be able to deal with this issue of race until the white evangelical church come clean and stop their nonsense of buttressing, supporting, and emboldening white superiority. And that's what they've done. And for Mr. Trump to say that coming from the president of the United States of America, for him to support what happened in Charlottesville, that there was Problems on both sides, instead of coming right out and saying that what those white racist anti-Semites were doing was wrong, he played up to it. He also, also spent money, take out an ad in the New York Times saying that the Central Park Five were, were guilty in their rapes case, even though scientific evidence, DNA proved that they were not. And still to this point, he has not, not extended an apology. And those persons, not maybe not all of them are racist, we can say that, but for the most part, they are uh, promoting racialized attitudes and policies when they supported Donald Trump. And then to have 80% of the white evangelicals supporting Donald Trump. Why do they support him? Because of racism, nationalism, 
xenophobia, misogyny. You have so-called spiritual church folk supporting these ideologies and stances. Our spirituality in America is corrupt. It's never been no basic on the side of Jesus. If it had been, we would not have supported slavery. If it had been, we would not have supported the suppression of women and keeping them from voting. If they had not been on the side of what was wrong, they would not have supported the bastion of gays who also are human beings. So this should be a wake-up call for America and a wake-up call for the evangelical community as it is embodied in the white community. And it's not just in the white community because we've got some of it in the black faith community because they have been school programmed, computerized by the racist ideology of organized, systematized, Romanized Christianity. Even, even there was sound in 1807, a slave Bible that white missionaries demanded that enslaved persons should read. And what was the slave Bible? The Bible where they cut every passage out of the Bible that dealt with liberation, social justice, and equality of opportunity. Can you imagine that? Well, three of those three Bibles, thanks to Fisk University, are on display at the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. But this is what so-called believers in Jesus did. So, we need to repent. We need to have truth and reconciliation as they had in South Africa when apartheid was dismantled. Bishop Desmond Tutu and Mr. Mandela and Mr. Bojet and others led a movement, but it was not just a kumbaya feel-good session. It was known first as a truth. You got to have truth-telling before you can have reconciliation. And that's what is so much needed today. I appreciate you modeling that truth-telling for us as right now, as you have throughout your many years of work. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I think this is a good time, is you've been involved not just in preaching about these issues, but you've also been involved in political issues. You have served in some local roles in San Francisco. You testified before Congress, such as during the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court nomination hearings, you, you've been active and involved in various political efforts. And, and sometimes we hear, well, you know, we should keep, keep the churches out of politics and then we should keep the pastors out of politics. Usually, of course, that just means we, we don't, not that we don't think you should be involved in politics, we just don't like what you're saying. But I wonder if you could talk about why, as a minister, part of your call has inherently brought you to talking about public policy, political issues. 
because I care about my sheep. I care about my flock. My sheep and my flock live in a world, not somewhere in the stratosphere. They live on earth, a real world. And the gospel miniature, according to Martin Luther says, God so loved the world that God gave God's only son. Now, if there is a Christian notion that God loves the world, you don't show love unless you're concerned about the welfare, the well-being of the beloved. That's what John Powell says in his book on love. And if the pastor really loves the flock, you don't feast the flock. You don't propose that the gospel is a prosperity gospel. About becoming rich, just only for oneself. You ought to be about the business of engaging that flock in an intelligent, responsible, truthful way so that we will have the summum bonum, the common good fulfilled. We should be concerned about the good of everybody. What is evil? Evil, according to my professor, Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor, is the absence of the good. And it's an evil thing for people not to have health care. It's an evil thing for people not to have quality education. It's an evil thing for people to live in violence and to be denied equality of opportunity. It is an evil thing to put down another person because he or she is different. That's evil. It is an evil thing to not make sure that everybody in a city has quality, I repeat, of opportunity. That's evil. It's destructive. And anything that destroys the human personality is evil. So that's why the preacher should, should be involved. That's why we should be involved in educational issues. That's why we should be involved in city hall where they are determining who gets what, where, when, and how much. That's what politics is. Where politics comes from, the Greek word polis, which means the art of governing the city, the polis. And we ought to be concerned about whether or not those persons who are in public office are about the business of providing equal opportunity for all. So you, you referenced your flock, and I did want to ask you about one individual who, of course, is moving into a new role. Senator Harris next month will be sworn in as vice president of the United States. And so this is a, a big moment, obviously, for your congregation and, and, and one of your own. And I wonder, not asking you, of course, to break any pastoral confidentiality, but I just wonder what you can tell us about Vice President-elect Harris. For those of us who, who haven't known her as well, I wonder if you could tell us about our, our soon-to-be new vice president. First of all, she is a woman of enlightenment and intelligence. She has been engaged with the people. 
he was my campaign manager when I ran for re-election to the Board of Supervisors in city and county of San Francisco. She is an encourager. She encourages all people, regardless of their social station in life. She is one of empathy. She, she cares about people. She's a connector. She's personable. And finally, she is, she's excellent in whatever she does. She's excellent in her speech. And she is at home in her own flesh. You do know she went to Howard University, one of the historically black colleges. She could have gone to some other school like Berkeley or even Stanford. But she chose to go to Howard a school has been involved in the struggle for liberation and human dignity. I knew her mother very well, too. And she represented the best of East Indian history, cultural, and movements for social justice. And I'm sure the one thing attracted Miss Harris to Third Baptist Church was the fact that our church is an all-inclusive church. And one of my associate ministers, Reverend Rod Conte, is a young brother whom my family and the church sponsored from Hyderabad, India, 25 years ago. And now, there are two children who were five and seven when they came here are doctors. Doctors, one in psychiatry, and the other one is a doctor of anesthesiology. So she is the epitome. She is a role model for womanhood and just human decency and dignity at its best. You know, and of course, Senator Harris brings a, a rich legacy and uniqueness and historic first, a lot of first, obviously, to this role. You, you've mentioned her, her mother of India and, of course, her, her father's from Jamaica. And like you, as you've already talked about in this conversation, that she has ancestors who were enslaved. And, and so I wonder what what this means to you to see she's going to be in a position that we've had enslavers in this position before, but we've never had someone who was descended from enslaved. What does that, what does that mean for our country that we are, we are changing in that way on who's representing us at the highest levels of our government? I think it's to the credit of, of the person who has uh, emerged to the office is not so much to the credit of this country because this country still has a lot more to do. It is to the credit of Mr. Biden that he chose Ms. Harris, but what she brings to the table is something that America has 
cheated itself on for a long time. So when you give everybody equality of opportunity, you have more resource, more knowledge at the table. But when you exclude other people, you are compromising, you're shortchanging your human capital. I just hope and pray that we would keep going and keep the faith. But we've had some progress before. And and, and, and yet there was retrogression, even during Reconstruction. From my native state of Mississippi, an AME preacher, Reverend Hiram Rhodes Revels, was elected to the U.S. Senate. Way back there. But what happened? Through the terror of the Ku Klux Klan, through voter suppression, we lost ground. And now we have Reverend Warnock running from the state of Georgia for the U.S. Senate. And hopefully he will win. Well, he brings much to the table in terms of integrity, in terms of scholarship, in terms of just decency. So we do nothing as a nation but shortchange ourselves when we engage in the oppression and put down of women, gay folks, Native Americans, Chinese. We've been guilty of that, of creating this dichotomous thinking of them against us, us against them. But when you really look at it, in terms of the origins of man and the habitat of humankind. We all came from the same place. According to Leakey, the paleontologist, what happened in terms of man's first habitat? It was over there in the Rift Valley. Where is the Rift Valley? In Kenya and Ethiopia. And and this, this is confirmed by the scientists. But when humankind began to migrate around the globe and wherever we stopped on the banks of a river or on a beach, we established what was called culture. What is culture? Different ways of doing things, different ways of thinking. And we develop, unfortunately, this dichotomous thinking of them against us, us against them, instead of having a mastery of the we. I never shall forget when I left home down Mississippi, my mother always told me when I went away, Amos, behave. Don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. Don't ask for anything. Let somebody offer it something to you. We've lost our manners as humankind as we migrated around the globe. But we fail to realize that lesson. Behave. And when you behave, the world becomes a beloved community. When you behave, we share our resources and we use the pronoun we, not them, not you, not it, but we. We need weeness in our thinking, weeness in our doings. And that's what the Christian faith at its best becomes, who are really true followers of Jesus, you have 
the knowledge that I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I will go and find them. There may be one sheepfold and one shepherd, spiritual in terms of ideas, that we're all about the same business of respecting the worth and the dignity of all human personalities. Well, I just had one last question, and this has been definitely an unusual year, a difficult year with coronavirus, and we are, you know, entering an, an even deadlier phase of it, it seems. And I know that the Black community has been particularly disproportionately impacted. And so I wonder what, what has this year been for, for you? What has it been like ministering in this pandemic on top of everything else that has been going on, including the, the, the racial injustices that we have been talking about? Well, it meant for me, as the question was raised for Joe, when Joe went through all of his sufferings, his great loss, the question was raised to him in the book of Job. Joe, are you the first man? What we're going through is not the first time. Unfortunately, it was the pandemic and the Black Plague. In recent times, there was also the pandemic of 1918. We went through even the pandemic of polio. I remember as a child in Mississippi back in the late 40s and 50s. I must remember Mr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had polio. And Mississippi, they whispered around the community, don't you go in that swimming pool, you might catch polio. There was a time when we had TB. They would say, he was sent away. She was sent away. They were sent away to a sanatorium. But with 1918, we did not learn our lesson. And in Mississippi, they say, if you don't get your lesson, you will not pass course and you have to repeat it. We did not learn our lesson from 1918. They went through the same thing. Records record that people fought wearing masks. And even there were some who dared to blame black folks who migrated from the South of Chicago for spreading that pandemic of that flu. Lo and behold, it discovered because of the soldiers who who were in the war. That was that that was the truth. So so we must we must see. This has come upon us, but this is not the first time. But when we use common sense, respect science, and love everybody, we will make it through it. We shall make it through. And that's the reason why I cannot cannot ignore the hypocrisy of some faith leaders who will put their people in harm's way and would not do social distancing, not do sheltering in, as if the church was going to fold up. Really, yes, it was a challenge, but 
The early church had no buildings. The early church was found in the catacombs. The early church had no cathedrals. They met in houses too. So in the meantime, in the meantime, we ought to have not politicized this issue. And that's the reason why so many people were duped, con, and, and played for the self-interest of some political individuals by making the mask wearing a political issue. They should have been ready, willing to wear the mask. We have to have safety belts on and cars. You don't get on a plane smoking a cigarette and follow that. But you have certain selfish people who will play games. An old African proverb says, when the big elephants fight, the grass is destroyed. And you, when you have a handful of self-serving politicians who are interested in power, money, and they are being like the Caesars of old, the Roman emperors, when they fight to hold on selfishly to power and to resources, what happens? The grass is destroyed. The people suffer. And those who are poor particularly poor whites in Kentucky, in Tennessee, in the mountains of North Carolina, who would dare follow some of the things that have been said by certain politicians. They are the ones who are suffering. They don't know it. And they are feeding into that narrative that says a handful is only deserving of privilege and resource. And the masses let them fend for themselves. But it should not be. The Bible says, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And everybody ought to have their fair share of the resources of this world. But so the world will still be here. And world meaning our social constructs where we are, we must follow the scientists as we go through this pandemic until we have a perfected vaccine that will give us restored health. Well, Reverend Brown, thank you so much for your time and for your words, for your many decades of living up to your biblical namesake of the great prophet Amos. And I hope that you will continue and your and your loved ones will continue to remain safe and healthy during this time. Well, you know, I went in on this note when I was eight years old in Sunday school in the Ferris Street Baptist Church there in Jackson. My Sunday school teacher, Miss Essie Randall, who went around the community with an old Silver Lake car, picking up children, taking them to church. Asked me one Sunday, Amos, do you know what your name means in Hebrew? I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, sit down, let me tell you. 
She said to me, your name means Amos, the prophet who bears the burdens of the people. And when you grow up, you're going to be a prophet. So with the addition of, of her words of explanation and the foundation that I acquired of my genealogy, that I got the gift of it all from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have fulfilled what my teacher taught me, and I have really given accent and concrete expression to what my roots said from my great-great-grandfather, Patrick Brown, raised monies to build that school and that church and to have some land that should have been everyone's prerogative with the 40 acres of the mule. But he made sure that he would get something himself. And I want to say I will do all I can to make sure that others will likewise receive a sense of place and dignity as long as God gives me breath to be a servant. Amen. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and uh, many blessings. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist About an Adjective. You can learn more about Third Baptist Church of San Francisco at thirdbaptist.org. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. Especially in this unusual year of coronavirus, your support is really helpful. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of our magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a special offer for you. Get your first year for half off. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can email me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.